0: As you can see, uh, in the last few weeks, we've uh, changed a bit in our worship order, and uh, part of that is to have the elders lead us in prayer, and uh, first Adrian and then Steve, and it will continue with the other elders. Tremendous blessing uh, to us uh, to have their ministry, Uh, so we thank God for that, Uh, and so encouraged by it. Uh, The last chapter of Judges is found on page 221, if you're using the Pew Bible. Judges chapter 21. We will read the final mess of Judges. Now, the men of Israel had sworn at Mitzpah. This is where they had gathered uh, to find out what had happened to this woman that had been sent to the tribes. And they, at that point, discovered why this happened, and they ended up having war. So that's what this is talking about, when they had gathered at Mitzpah with the uh, tribe of Benjamin. So all the tribes gathered against Benjamin. That's just a little background if you haven't been with us. So at that point they said, "'No one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin.' And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, "'O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel?' And the next day, the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord, to Mitzpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, one tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives, for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? What had happened in the battle is that the original 27,000 warriors of Benjamin had been decimated, and there were only 600 left. And also, all the wives and children had been killed. We'll talk about that a bit So all they had was 600 men left in Benjamin. So where are we going to get wives? And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord to Mitzpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So... The congregation sent twelve thousand of their bravest men there and commanded them, "Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do: every male and every woman that is lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction." It's the classic uh, statement uh, that was applied to the Canaanites uh, to devote them to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead four hundred young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Rimon, where they had fled, to where they had fled, and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead. But they were not enough for them. Do the math. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. It's best interpreted as bringing judgment to Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, "'What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin?' And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel, yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters. The people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. Third time that's mentioned. So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Labona, And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty." And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Thus the reading of God's Word. Now, there are three episodes to this story. This is the third of the episode, episode three. Uh, So chapter 19 was episode one. We could entitle the wickedness or wickedness in Benjamin. And there in chapter 19, in the Benjamite town of Gibeah, a mob of men violate a woman who was traveling through the town with her husband. So that's episode one, wickedness in Benjamin. Episode two in chapter 20, war against Benjamin. Israel comes together and demands that the tribe of Benjamin turn over these wicked men from Gibeah, but Benjamin won't do it. They side with the violent town, and this difficult war follows in which the tribes of Israel that are gathered lose more warriors than all the warriors that Benjamin had, actually. It was a very tough war. But finally, they defeat Benjamin, and these 600 men are left, as we've mentioned. But interestingly, the uh, the, the tribes didn't stop there with the defeat of the army. In fact, they defeated the army in segments. They first knocked out 18,000 of them. Not satisfied, they pursued them further, knocked out 5,000 more. Not satisfied, they pursued them further, knocked out 2,000 more. So you only have 600 left. But we're still not done. We're going to go wipe out all the women and children in Benjamin. So they weren't really commanded to do that, but that's what they went ahead and did. So tragic violence in a town in episode one, then tragic violence against a fellow tribe in episode two, the fact that you had to have that violence, but it was violence nonetheless. So this wickedness in Benjamin, war against Benjamin, and here in the third episode, we have wives for Benjamin. And guess what? More tragic violence. Violence, violence, and more violence. We've already faced the moral chaos in these stories, haven't we? Uh, In the first episode, it's not only the violent mob, but the man they were first after, this Levite, this priest, who's the defender of justice and righteousness in Israel, or supposedly, he throws his own wife out to the crowd so that he doesn't get it himself to save his own skin. And then after that, he committed more violence, against her by what he did to her body and distributing it to the tribes, which was kind of another, as a dual violation, first by the mob and then by her own husband. And then in the second episode, the terrible irony is, it's the first time Israel has been unified in the whole book of Judges. Finally unified, finally brought together, finally acting in concert. To do what? To dismember themselves. <laughs> Finally gathered in unity to cut themselves to pieces. However necessary it was. It's, it's a tragedy. And there's the, the fact that it began with the broken relationship between this Levi and his wife. And then look where it's gotten to. With tens of thousands of people and a whole tribe decimated. And here in episode three, we have more just moral and social chaos and breakdown. So let's look at this. If Israel thought it was right not only to fight and defeat Benjamin, but to wipe out their population, why, after killing their women, are they so now concerned about getting them women? See the irony of that? You just go out and kill all their women, and you turn around and think, wait a minute here. Like like being on a desert island and you burn the only boat you have for firewood, and then you look out in the ocean and you think, wait a minute, maybe I shouldn't have done that, you know. That's this this feel, this bizarre nature. However broken they may be and however compassionate they may be toward uh Toward Benjamin, as this is expressed, this is still so bizarre. You think maybe you should have thought about that before you went and killed everybody. And then they ask, why has this happened? And maybe, as some have said or suggested, it could mean that they kind of said, they're saying, how could we have gotten to this point? How could these things have happened to us that we've almost lost this tribe or that we have lost this tribe? But then again, you kind of think, well, it's pretty obvious how there could be a tribe lacking. You killed them, and you killed them some more, and then you killed them some more, and then you tried to wipe them completely out. That's how it happened. Yeah, that's how we got to this point. So, how do we rescue the situation? And here, it is confusing, because this speaks of their compassion, it speaks of their brokenness, it speaks of their uh, offerings. But they're not going to break their vow. And this, this really reeks of Jephthah's vow earlier where he vowed that no matter who or what comes out to greet me, Lord, if you'll give me victory, I'll sacrifice whatever it is, not thinking that maybe it could be something precious like your daughter who came out, but this rash vow that then he keeps and sacrifices her. And so this vow is mentioned over and over. Yeah, but we can't break our vow. We can't break our vow. We can kill a whole lot more people, but we can't break our vow. So there's that's confusion. Chaos. How is it keeping your oath that you shouldn't give them any wives when you're working so hard to get them wives? Isn't that a violation of the whole spirit of your vow? They are not going to have any wives. Oh, we'll kill towns to get them wives." What? So they remember their oath about any tribe that didn't show up and they gathered together for eventual war with Benjamin. But they hadn't originally even thought about that, that really that originally they didn't initially just go and wipe out any town that didn't support them. This is like an afterthought, right? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe this situation is not lost. Was any town not present? How's that feel? Jabesh Gilead. Ah, okay. Now, what should they do to Jabesh Gilead? What did they vow to do? We're going to wipe out anybody completely who didn't show up. That was the vow. But now, we're going to you know, we're, we're, it's kind of like Calvin Ball. You remember Calvin and Hobbes? Calvin's playing ball with Hobbes and they just keep making up the game as they go, you know. Wait, you can't take the ball away. Oh, yes, I can because I was closing my eyes three times when I did. Oh, shoot. Well, you know, and they just, just keep making it up. So a thousand rules, that's Calvin Ball. And so it's kind of Calvin Ball. Make it up as you go. Originally, they didn't intend to keep the oath this way, uh, to say, we're gonna kill them, but we're gonna keep all the women who aren't married. Uh, they didn't even go to J.S. Gilead and ask them, why didn't you guys show up? What was this? Or even offer this deal. Hey, we won't wipe you out if, if maybe you would give us some of your women. You know, nothing like that. No. It, and it's, it's, it's described in such a short order. Just, they sent them over there, they got the women, they came back. So, here they are, it says, acting out of compassion for Benjamin, whom they had just massacred. Benjamin stood with the rapists of Gibeah, and now the tribes reward them by killing another town and giving them 400 women. And these 400 women have their families killed and are now forced to become wives of these men who have defended such wickedness. Some of these men may have been the very ones that engaged in the rape that night. You get a feel of the narrator saying, This is a horrible, sick mess that's going on. So, you've done the calculations. We've got 400. We need 200 more. What to do? What to do? Kidnapping. (laughs) Kidnapping. Of course. We'll kidnap some women. We're going to help these men who violated a woman or defended the men who violated a woman by going and violating two hundred more women. We'll solve the problem. What is going on? Interesting, the only other place the only other place where this word that's translated in ESV as snatched is found in Psalm ten. It says of the wicked man, he sits in ambush in the villages and hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his nets. That idea of seizing the weak and helpless. They seize the weak and the helpless. <clears throat> and again, these women are taken from their families, kidnapped. Kidnapping is punishable by death in the law. But when you've got enough power, you do whatever you want to do. You go and kidnap some women. And they're made, they're taken away from their families, away from their tribe, and they're made to live with these men who have supported the violation of a woman. As Barry Webb says, this is an ironic counterpoint to the rape of the concubine in chapter 19. ironic counterpoint to that rape. And it seems that Israel's compassion is twisted at this point. They they seem to be more concerned with this artificial maintenance of one of their appendages instead of keeping covenant with Yahweh. And, of course, (laughs) their attention to the vow is like, Okay, the men of Jabesh-Gilead, it's okay for us to take 400 women from there because they weren't really there when we made the vow at Mitzvah, and they're dead anyway, right? And then the people of Shiloh, you go to them and say, Hey, technically, I know we all took this vow, and apparently they did too, that you wouldn't give up your women, but technically you didn't give them up. They were taken. See? It's okay, we kept our vow. You just see how ridiculous this is. The heart of it is that we're not going to give wives, but we'll arrange for a kidnapping, so technically we kept our little vow. Oh, I feel so good about myself that I did that. Benjamin has his wives all as well with the world. The verbs in, chapter 20, in verse 24 actually emphasize as... Uh, Lapsley has said, the separateness and isolation of each of the tribes and even of each individual Israelite, that they each go their own way in their own place. So the return is really not characterized by unity. It's characterized by fragmentation of the tribes. And then, of course, this last statement, which is a bookend to how this whole Uh, these three episodes began. The short form of this in chapter 19, verse 1, in those days when there was no king in Israel. So it reminds us at the beginning, no king in Israel, and so watch out what's going to happen. And at the very end, there's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The the narrator would assume that by the, the end of this chapter... At the end of these three chapters, you're just sick at your stomach and he says, yeah, yeah, like I said, nobody, nobody's obeying God. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. Well, a couple of things uh, to draw from this passage, this last episode, this last three episodes, and from Judges as a whole, because this really is the capstone on everything that has been Uh, set before us in Judges. Had this introduction of Judges that first talked about the moral, social chaos and breakdown in uh, the Judges period and then the religious breakdown. Then you have the stories of the Judges and at the end, in different order, religious breakdown, social breakdown. And the whole thing is to show How desperately evil we are without, ultimately, a righteous king. How desperately evil we are apart from God's kingship. That's the real message. Because it's not just any king. It's a king who will bring us under and represent and lead us to the true king who is God himself. Apart from God's kingship. This is where we will be. This is where mankind will be. This is where any church will be. This is where any family will be. We will be giving ourselves up to our own idols. And the, the moral issues are all connected to the religious issues, which is centrally idolatry in Judges. Judges. And so, idolatry leads me to self, or it is an idolatry of self, and this breaks down relationship and it destroys community. So, one thing that's very obvious in this passage is how evil is like dominoes. Evil is knocking, will always knock over way more than you think it will. Evil is expansive. We begin with one relationship, broken relationship in a family. We end up with all of Israel just going down the tubes uh, practically. It spreads. It backfires. It has momentum. It's a force. It has movement. It's a power that lusts for destruction. Some of you have seen the mummy movie and you know what's going to happen when they're fiddling with the chant and have the key and they say the words and the mummy comes alive and and he almost takes over the whole world. you know. But this is a great picture of what evil does. We just play with evil. We don't think of its danger. We don't think of where it could go. We don't think of what it does. We don't hate evil like we should. We don't fear evil in the good sense how we should. That's why the Puritan John Owen, when talking about putting sin to death, always spoke about uh, attacking the first risings of sin in your heart. That, That needs to be the constant battleground for believers. When thoughts come, that's where my warfare is. Uh, to try to attack to try to have my mind and my thoughts and my heart fixed upon good things, so that good things will come out of my life, uh, Jesus says that uh, as a man thinks or, or that, that a man pulls forth from the treasure of his heart what comes into his life, and so the the, the war for evil is begins inside and We've got to realize how accustomed we all get to evil. That's why the Word is so important. To to immerse ourselves in the, the Word, the psalmist says, Because I've been in your Word, I hate every false way, in Psalm 119. Why do I hate these false ways? Why do I? How do I recognize them and even have a heart to despise these harmful things that I do to people? To recognize the harmful things and then to hate them and to turn away from them. Your word has done this for me. Thy word have I hidden in my heart, he says, that I might not sin against you. That's what gives me clarity. It's what gives me perspective. It's what shines into my heart and life so that I can see what I really am. And the sheer beauty of the Word and how it sets forth love and love's sacrificial giving, love's beauty and kindness and patience and forbearance, the way it sets that forth especially in the person of Jesus Christ. Calls me to a whole new life of giving myself away. You can either have that constant glorious influence that's so specially focused on the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, or not, or be left to yourself and to your own evil. We have a natural blindness to our evil. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. Where's your number one area of deceit? Right there. This, of all the deceitful things in the earth, as you would think about it, here is the concentration of deceit. I deceive myself. I don't see myself. I don't understand myself. It says the, that the heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? No. I can't. You can't. And that's why the psalmist, at the end of Psalm 139, a psalm about how God knows me and, and, and knows everything about me, knows what I'm going to say before I even say it, knows my thought from afar, in the light of his knowledge of me, the psalmist prays at the end, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. Test me. Sift me. See? Know my thoughts. Know me, Lord. Enter me. Get inside. Know what makes me tick. Why I do the things. Why I feel the things. Why do I react this way against my husband or wife or children? Lord, know me. And if there's any grievous way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. You see, there's a desire against sin, isn't it? There's a desire against sin. Realizing my own helplessness, realizing the need for God's grace in my life. And we talk about this a lot in in counseling, but in every relationship you bring this, whole world of hurt that you grew up with in some way or form and how you dealt with it, whether it was your family or your school or people who would mean to you along the way. And we just learn these different ways to manage our lives and cope, we have these coping mechanisms for life. And they become so much a part of us, we don't even know why we do what we do, why we react the way we do. But you'll end up in the most intimate relationships Treating your mate or a close friend in ways that you don't even understand. And you think, and here's the, here's the tie-in with this passage, you do what is right in your own eyes. You know, you think, she doesn't deserve any better. This is right that I should say this. Yeah, I yelled at you, but you needed it, you know. We'll just justify our whole action because to us, in our fractured way to look at life, that's the way it is. You're not going to serve that person any more, any better, because you don't even see his need of it or her need of it or why you should do it. You're so captured in your own sin, you see. We just do what is right in our own eyes instead of being constantly nourished and and uh, assessed and cleaned and examined by God's word, uh, we are just with our heart that's deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And we can't understand ourselves. So you see, this, this passage should cause us to wake up and, 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 and we see this morass of evil. And we think, oh Lord God, deliver me from being a part of anything like this. Lord, save me, save us, that we will not be drawn into sin, that we will not be divided as a people, that we will not let gossip run wild, that I will not allow a relationship to harden and become brittle and broken over years because I won't deal with my sin like sin was not dealt with here. And this is this is our Christianity. It, it, it's one of the things that has... Uh, at times saddened me in a way to think, wait a minute, I'm not going to grow in any part of my life in the future without realizing something else I'm doing wrong. Oh, well, that's a comforting thought, you know. <laughs> but that's it. Constantly finding out how I need to change and and. It's all done in the realm of forgiveness. It's done within God's acceptance and love. His arm is always around me. He always upholds me. He's always for me in Christ Jesus. He never abandons me. His smile is upon me because I'm in Christ Jesus. And in that gracious, accepting context, I get to walk in a greater and greater liberty from sin. That's Christianity. That's why it's described in this way. In the same chapter that says all things work together and nothing shall separate us from God's love. And it speaks of life in the Spirit and it speaks of sonship as part of this glorious life. It says in Romans 8, 13, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is a part of your new glorious life. As a son or daughter of the king, You get to put sin to death in your life now. Really put it to death. Really eliminate it more and more from your life. Set free more and more to be the kind of person that brings good into other people's lives. As he says there in Romans 8-2, The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This is a vital part of God's salvation. This, this whole, these chapters tell us how critical it is that we have a king who can deliver us from this kind of evil. And he does. He does. In his very death, think of this, his suffering and death is not only there to set you free from the guilt and punishment of sin, but to set you free from sinning. He suffered to set you free from sin. He sacrificed everything to set you free from sin. So that Romans 6 says, Our old self was crucified with Him so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. This controlling, dominating life under sin could be brought to nothing through his pain, through his sacrifice, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, Paul says. The one who has died has been set free from sin. And so Paul can speak of the reign, the kingship of grace in our lives in Romans 5.21. This reign of grace through Christ Jesus in our lives. And he can say in Romans 6, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, you're now slaves of righteousness. That's what he would say to you. You're slave of righteousness now. Your king is righteousness. Your king is Jesus. You have a new rule. You have a new life. And it reminds me of the passage in John 15 where... I love this, the way Jesus puts this. I'm sure Jesus appreciates the fact that I love it. Um, Just telling you how I feel, okay. Um, But he says there in John 15, 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Then how do you abide in his love? How do you... Stay under the shepherding care of Christ? How do you stay under His protection in this place of safety and nourishment? He says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Now, that's not that you earn my love this way, but it's the same way if my father, who was a doctor, prescribed certain things for me to get well, and he said, Darwin, if you'll follow my prescriptions, if you take this medicine, or, as he talked another time, if you do these back exercises, you will get well. Well, he, as my father, especially loved me and given me a prescription. And so this was a prescription of love. It's like, Darwin, stay in my love, follow my word. You see, outside of this realm of his commandment are destructive paths of self and idolatry, where am focused on me and not. Others, me, and not God. The place of safety and glory it doesn't mean that I might not, I might, I won't get a disease or persecution won't fall on me, or those kinds of things. But the safety and nourishment of doing good to others and bringing good into their lives—that is—that is abiding in His love and abiding in His commandments. And this passage just tells us how bad it is out there. You see. To make us all the more say, Lord, keep me. Lord, change me. Lord, thank you for your great salvation that transforms me. And so, Judges points us away from sin. And of course, as I've already talked about, it points us to the greatness of the King, ultimately Jesus. It's probably an argument, Judges originally uh, for David is king over against Saul. And the fact that Judah is uh, pronounced, uh, is prominent. And the fact that this in, the whole ending of it is, you see, we need a, a righteous king. And later it may have been used when the northern kingdom went off and was utterly committed to idolatry. And an argument to say, we need to return to, at least there were a few... Uh, Davidic kings that were good in the southern kingdom. But ultimately, it points to God's mercy in Christ. Even His mercy here is is amazing because you think, how could God be committed to Israel when they've done so much evil? And even in this preservation of Benjamin, which is questionable... Their first king, Saul, came from Benjamin, and then a the Saul that we know pretty well, whose later name, Paul, came from Benjamin. And so, in all this mess, God preserves a tribe, and because of that, He later gives us a man that has nourished all of our hearts in the epistles. That's mercy. But from Romans 3, we learn the reason He had mercy. Throughout the whole of the Old Testament, the reason he didn't just blot everything else out was that he was waiting. He was being patient, enduring, until the time when his wrath against sin would be poured out on his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So even in this mercy, we know you only could be this merciful to them Because of what Christ was going to do. What Christ was going to accomplish. And part of preserving Benjamin and preserving Israel was to provide us the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his mercy working for you. The fact that Israel is standing is because God loves you and wanted to bring Christ to you. And so Christ is our only king who can deliver us from guilt and judgment because he bore the judgment of God. He's the only king that has come, stood in our place, who is designated by God to be our sacrifice. How glorious, how wonderful, how assuring that God himself has provided this sacrifice of his son. God himself urges you to come and rest in his son so that your sins can be taken away. How can you doubt this God who sacrificed his own son to bring forgiveness into your life? And then... Finally, this son reigns. He reigns in general over the whole earth as Paul described that in his resurrection he rose to ascend to the right hand of God far above every power on earth. That's where he is. And that's why in Psalm 2 that deals with the same subject, the, the writer can say to the kings of the earth, kiss the son lest you perish and die in the way. Like the whole earth is headed for final judgment under this king. All who oppose him are ruined. And, and then in that final day, all sin will be removed. He will renew the whole earth and his people will be given it as their inheritance. And we will dwell with him forever and ever. This aches for a king and a king is already on the throne now. And that is why we can be, as, as, as uh, Cosper describes here, an outpost of the kingdom, an outpost, a representation of what happens when Christ sets up his reign in the hearts of people and in a community of people. This is what it looks like. So we become this light that's breaking out into the darkness, into the darkness that's represented in judges, that's all around us. We form an anti-kingdom against that, a commune of beauty and peace and love that extends itself out and, and calls others to come and bow down before this gracious king and find the same forgiveness we have and the same renewal and transformation that we have. And how wonderful that He brings His reign. As we read in Jeremiah 31, He puts His law in our hearts in this new covenant. He causes us to walk in His law, as it says in Ezekiel. We have glorious strength in the Holy Spirit that's been given us. And I want to... And and, and Ezekiel 34 talks about how He sets up David, who is Jesus. But He says, David will reign as the shepherd of my people forever and ever. And so this king has come. This king is reigning. This king reigns over the whole earth, and he reigns over his people in particular to bring about the good and glory and light that he desires for his world through us. And this verse is one that we use a lot. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus But in the context, it says this, that you have now been set free from sin and become slaves of God and the fruit you get leads to holiness and eternal life. So when he says free gift of God is eternal life, he means the whole thing. You have been given this free gift from God, being set free from sin, becoming slaves of God becoming more and more beautiful and holy, and you will inherit eternal life in it. That is the free, glorious gift of the King that has come. Let us pray. Lord, we see so much of ourselves in the evil of Israel. We see so much of our own idolatry, We see our own commitment to self, our own uh, anger and lust and covetousness and absolute foolishness and brokenness. Lord, we thank you that indeed there is a king that delivers us. Indeed, there is a king who reigns. There is a king in this world. And we thank you that he has come to us. We thank you that he has delivered us and is delivering us and will finally deliver us. We thank you, Lord, that in the horrible mess that, of this world's sin that we see every day that constantly grieves us and numbs us at times because of the rampant evil, that there is a king and he will bring to a final conclusion this world and will remove all evil from this world. Oh, we thank you, we praise you, we praise you, Lord Jesus, that you will deliver your world from evil and bring us into your eternal peace. Oh, Lord, in the meantime, may we be such a great outpost of light and beauty and influence to bring so many, many more people to know this gracious King and to be set free, in the words of Paul, from self To no longer live for themselves, but to live for this one who died for them. Oh Lord, that is freedom. May we be your instruments to bring it about for Jesus' glory. Amen.